Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. In news about national parks last week, we took a look at plans to add 14 acres of parkland to the Presidio at Golden Gate National Recreation Area in California, relayed word that the Point Reyes National Seashore Lighthouse has gone through a 13-month restoration project and announced that a reenactment of the historic 20-mule team wagon trains at Death Valley would ride again. In this week's show, Doug Smith, who heads Yellowstone National Park's Wolf Project, discusses how successful the park's wolf recovery program has been. We also visit with the executive director of the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation to discuss the five national park units the foundation works with and end with a look at fall and winter migrations across the national park system. Yellowstone National Park's wolf recovery program has largely been a success. Since the mid-1990s, resident packs of wolves have been established through much of the park. They have helped contain the park's elk population and today number at least 80 individuals in nine packs scattered across Yellowstone. Doug Smith, the Yellowstone Wolf Project leader, joins us today to provide an update on the park's wolves. Welcome to The Traveler, Doug. Thank you, Kurt. I'm happy to be here. So overall, how would you say the wolves are doing in Yellowstone? Very well. I think they're restored. The population's been stable for about 10 years, which indicates kind of the up and down and the, you know, recolonization things that was necessary have taken place and wolves are are a natural part of the ecosystem now. Have the have the wolves pretty much um, established um, or stabilized their territories, or are you still seeing battles over home ranges? I know if, over the years you come out with these wolf maps, wolf pack maps, and I don't know how much they've changed or stayed relatively the same over, over the years. I mean, like every living creature, there's always a to and fro, a back and forth, and those territory boundaries are always in flux. But having said that, the location of the primary wolf territories is amazingly stable. In other words, where wolves settled in Yellowstone, say the first eight, 10 years, is primarily where they are now. And the wolves have divided up the landscape to be in different territories. And those territories year to year are stable. Um, what I said is true, the boundaries wax and wane. Um, but you know, wolf packs are a family. And these families get a toehold in a certain area and their lineages kind of keep to those certain areas on the landscape. And so it's in one way, amazingly stable um, where wolves have settled in Yellowstone are where they are year after year. And there's large swaths of the park where there aren't wolves because there's not prey there year round. The prey leaves in the winter. And so the wolves can't be there. So they really have um, established in uh, the habitable areas uh, and have stayed there to a, a, a large degree in a stable way. So is that why we don't see one down the thoroughfare region? The, the prey base just isn't sufficient? That's true. Now, the thoroughfare historically has been a wolf pack territory. Um, you know, the Delta pack has been there for a long time. They're gone now. Other packs have moved through there. 
Um, and there used to be wolves that moved through there in the winter. And that's kind of gone away. Some of that is due to there was a local population of elk that no longer winter there. Some of that's due to wolves. Um, you know, it's an example of elk and bison and deer can live in a harsh winter environment when you don't have a predator present. Uh, you know, winter is harsh and you barely get by. Um, but you might get by if a predator doesn't come along and eat you. Mm -hmm. But if it's a harsh living and, you know, it's deep snow, you add a predator to the mix and that no longer makes it a place you can stay. So that small elk herd, I believe it was a few hundred, isn't there anymore. The moose are still there, but that's not enough to, you know, sustain the wolves all winter. Occasionally there's a bison bull that gets back there and just can't get out because the snow's so deep. But that's not enough to sustain them year-round. So that area has kind of gone blank on the map, to be honest. Summertime wolves move through, might use the area because there's a flux of elk that pours back into that country. It's great summering habitat, but we've kind of lost the winter component. Yeah. Now, looking at the, the, the chart of the 2018 wolf pack territories, um, you know, looking at the names, the Wapiti Lake Pack, the Cougar Creek Pack. Um, the only one that really um, sounds familiar to me is the Molly's Pack. Um, is that the, the longest lived pack, so to speak, in, in Yellowstone? It is. It is a cool story. That pack, uh, you know, we've studied the average lifespan of wolves, and we're even getting into, because few people have looked at it, the average lifespan of a pack. And the average is about 10, 12 years. You know, a short one could be just two, three. But Molly's is the outlier for the longest running pack. That used to be the Crystal Creek pack that we introduced in northern Yellowstone in 1995. Right. They lost the territorial battle the next year in 1996 with the Druid Peak pack, killing the alpha male, wounding the alpha female, sending them south into Pelican Valley. And they have been there ever since in a continuous lineage that we've documented. And so this next year will be 25 years. And that's one of the longest running wolf packs known to people. There might be some packs in Denali National Park, Alaska, documented by Gordon Haber, uh, a late researcher up there that might be longer. His packs went back to the Adolf Murray times. But that certainly is a standout. And what caused them to live that long? We don't know, but probably three things is one, they live in the middle of the park where competition is less. There's fewer wolves in the center of the park. So the territorial battles are infrequent. In the north, territories are stacked up on top of each other and competition is keen. So they found a place where it's quiet um, another thing that's key is they established it early. So they probably picked a good spot, you know, it was a blank park when we first chucked wolves out there and they found a good place. So it continues to be a good place. And then last, and this could be the most important, they had a few key individuals that lived a long time. And I think they were glue that held the pack together and we don't have solid research on this yet, but it looks like it's females. You get a good female leader, she can hold things together. And, you know, average lifespan of a wolf is about five to six years, but they can live eight, nine, ten. And we had a female live that long in Molly's. And so that can be the reason that a pack will 
subsist a long time. And so we think it's a little bit of all three of those for mollies. You know, one of the last times we talked about uh, the wolves in the park there, you'd mentioned that the, the Molly's pack had, had figured out how to bring down bison on a somewhat regular basis and that the, the wolves in that pack were a little bit bigger than the wolves um, in the other packs in the parks. Could that have played any role in their longevity? It has, because bison are there year-round. So, you know, it's not like the elk and pelican. You know, pelican has got, you know, tons of elk in the summer and they all leave in the winter. But the bison stay, and it's mostly bulls. It used to be cow-calf groups, but they largely don't winter there anymore. It's mostly bulls, and can be 100 or so animals. And Molly <clears throat> has figured out how to kill them. And it's tough, and it can take all day, or it can take days. And, um, you know, a lot of it depends on deep snow, so they don't have good maneuverability. Uh, a lot of it depends on, you know, waiting them out for a good situation, and then that slow grind of winter, uh, I know it sounds bad, people go through it, but winter wears you down, and the wolves know that. And so they just wait for those bison to get weak, and then they you know, time their attacks. And if it's a really hard winter, and I think the wolves know this too, there's bison that die from winter kill. So mm-hmm. it's like free lunch. And the grizzlies are uh, hibernating, and you know grizzlies steal wolf food all the time, but they don't in the winter. So if a bull bison dies, uh, you know you got you got food for a week, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they figured that out. Now what they'll do too is if they don't, um, get, you know, early winter when bison might be hard to kill and there's not a lot of snow, they'll just leave the valley and go someplace else, you know, and. and and kill an elk somewhere or kill a deer somewhere or find a bison carcass that has died somewhere else. And so, you know, they deal with them as I described, or they travel and, and wait till they can deal with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating adaptation actually. And I think they are bigger and their pack tends to be bigger than the average size packs all because you need to be that way to kill bison. And do they, um, I guess, imagine, I guess I imagine from time to time they, they get some, some new genes in from another wolf that adds, uh, comes into the territory? Correct. You don't have to worry about inbreeding? Yeah, wolves avoid inbreeding. Um, they, they won't breed with a close relative, except in extenuating circumstances like on islands mm-hmm. when you have no choice. Um, but yes, they'll get a, a wolf that it will infiltrate the pack from other packs that's unrelated um, to, to keep the, you know, pack genetically strong. We're talking today with Doug Smith, the Yellowstone Wolf Project leader, about uh, how Yellowstone National Park's wolves are doing uh, since uh, the recovery program started back in the mid-1990s. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. 
The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. And Doug, back in the early 2000s, from roughly 2002 to 2007, the wolf population in Yellowstone occasionally surpassed 150 individuals. Um, most recently, it was roughly 80 individuals um, in 2018. Why hasn't the, the upper end of the population sustained itself? Elk. So we have a we had then an overpopulated elk uh, situation. So in short, Kurt. You know, Yellowstone, and it was just, it's not a criticism, but it was a management practice back 100 years ago. Uh, we killed off all the predators, um, primarily wolves and cougars. Uh, bears are always around, but low numbers, and that caused the elk population to surge and grow in numbers, probably in, impactful on the environment, the vegetation. So park managers controlled elk uh, by, by killing them or shipping them to all over, all over North America and even Mexico, even to reestablish elk populations where they had been lost. Mm -hmm. Then, in 1968, that practice stopped, and the elk population grew to, you know, potentially we don't know this exactly, but you know, record numbers. It wasn't upwards of 19,000 19, at one point. Yeah, and that's counted elk. It's well known that when you count elk, you miss a lot, and the average number you miss is roughly 30 percent, but it can be up to 50 percent. Wow. So that true elk population was well over 20,000. Our our best estimate now is we're in the 6 to 8,000 range. And I know a lot of elk hunters are like, what the heck? But, you know, a lot of times in, in nature, less is more. That's more in balance with the system. But to get from 20 plus thousand down to 6 to 8,000, you know, wolves, cougars, bears, humans killed a bunch of elk. Um, and to do that, their numbers built up to high numbers, that's what caused the 150-plus wolves in Yellowstone that you referred to. But that was kind of an overshoot. Mm -hmm. In other words, there was a ton of food when we dumped wolves out in 1995, 96, and 97, and they responded and had a lot of pups and high survival, um, had a lot of packs. Wolf density was very high. But, and then cougars did the same thing. They just did it on their own. We dumped out the wolves. The cougars came back on their own. Uh, bear numbers increased too. The state outside the park when the elk left in the winter was hunting elk at a high rate because they, they thought that the elk were damaging the landscape. All of that together conspired to cause a decline. And we, that decline has occurred. And it's probably more in, uh, you know, fit for the environment. Um, again, elk hunters don't like this because hunter success rates around the park have declined. Big issue. But that was built on a Yellowstone being an elk farm. Mm -hmm. You know, essentially growing elk in the summer and sending them out during the hunting season. And hunters liked it, but the ecosystem probably didn't. And if you're a park visitor that was looking for a a well-balanced ecosystem with lots of biodiversity, you probably didn't like it either. Uh, you know, it's the story of human society. Some like things and some don't. But we do feel ecologically we're at a better point now. Uh, that, and, and wolves have declined to a degree. Cougars have. Uh, bears haven't because they're primarily vegetation eaters. 
So their population doesn't hinge on elk like wolves and cougars do. And and wolves and cougars do use deer and bison and moose and pronghorn and things like that. But <clears throat> at least in the wolf case, it was driven by elk. So all, and that's a book we just wrote, summarized almost, you know, a 150,000 word book that I summarized, but that you know, is a lot of the story of the last hundred years. Have the, the wolf litters gotten smaller as the, the elk population came down? In general, no, but survival has gone down. And so that is a characteristic of wolf populations in that if a female wolf gets pregnant, um, she will typically have a normal sized litter. Now that's not always true. If she isn't getting good nutrition while she's gestating those young, um, it, it can affect her litter size. But what we've noticed is that decline in, in pup numbers born uh, is is less than pups that survive. So the female has the pups and how they make it over summer, fall is the determining factor of how big their litter is. Um, summer, fall is the worst time of year to be a wolf. So the best time is winter. Why? Everything I said about Molly's Pack and Pelican Valley applies. All the game is struggling with getting through winter. That makes them weak and good wolf prey. Mm-hmm. In the summer, it's the reverse. You know, the vegetation is growing and luxuriant and nutritious and lush and the elk, deer, bison eat it and they get in good shape. And secondly, they're not constrained. You know, deep snow high up keeps the elk and deer and bison out of there. That snow melts, goes away. They spread out across the park. All of that creates a bad situation for wolves. So they get less food and less things are really good. So who's going to die first? The most vulnerable part of the population, that would be the pups. So, you know, wolves are very sensitive to the food supply. And in general, 10, 15 years ago, food was much better than it is now. And that's reflected in poor pup survival. Although this year, 2019, has an uptick in pups. And we think that's because 2017 and 2018 were low pup years. And so there's a little bit of a bounce back because of that decline. It created a little bit better conditions for us to have a good year. Now, will that withstand itself into the winter? Because they got to get to that midwinter point before things really get good for them. We'll see. Interesting. Is is hunting outside the park a problem? I know over the years um, there have been those highly publicized cases where uh, this wolf or that wolf strayed outside the park and was killed by a hunter. Um, it, it doesn't seem like we hear that much about hunting in wolves, Yellowstone wolves. It's not because we've worked real hard with the states, both Wyoming and Montana, less so with Idaho, to come up with quotas that restrict hunting close to the park. And so we have not observed a, a, a populational impact. In other words, uh, our wolves that primarily live in the park that travel outside the park during hunting season and get killed, does that lead to population declines? And the answer is no. Now we are studying this. And interestingly, Kurt, we're studying this with three other parks, Grand Teton, Denali, and Yukon Charlie in Alaska, because the situation is different for every park. Uh, but we're studying the impacts of hunting outside of parks on wolves in parks in those four parks. 
And what we're learning, except maybe for Yukon Charlie, which experiences wolf control, which means killing most of the wolves in the region to grow caribou and moose, you know, purposely, uh, that's a slightly different situation. And they have subsistence hunting in the park. But Denali, Grantita, and Yellowstone, the hunting outside probably doesn't impact the population inside. But what hasn't been studied, and we're doing it now, is does it impact their social dynamics? And this has been an understudied aspect in all of wolf ecology, um, but it's a very important part of wolf life history. I mean, wolves live in packs, essentially families. And so you kill a wolf, it might not have any impact on the population at all, but it could affect the dynamics in the pack. And what I'm talking about for Yellowstone, we see that packs that lose a wolf uh, have a slightly lower chance of staying together the next year after the harvest. And then they also have a slightly less probability of producing pups that next spring. You know, the wolf hunting season is fall, winter, and their breeding season is February. Their pup rearing season's April. If they lose a wolf during that time period, uh, they have a slightly lower chance of breeding that next year. And so we know these data best for Yellowstone because uh, Yellowstone's got the most specific data, and we're trying to gather data from these other parks to see if it's true. Uh, so there does appear to be an impact socially, even though there's not an impact populationally. So no matter what the individual wolf's status is, I mean, it doesn't have to be one of the alpha members um, to produce that effect? No. Uh, we don't have enough data to say yet, but you know, killing a pup probably does not have any impact unless you get a lot of them because pack size is really important to, you know, wolf ecology everywhere. Uh, and there is a pack effect. Bigger packs are more resilient to human harvest than our small packs. Uh, but you lose a leader, you lose a breeder. There's a greater likelihood that these impacts of cohesiveness and reproduction are, are going to be felt. Um, so yes, there, there, there is a difference of, of who get killed, how big your pack is. Smaller packs don't deal with harvest as well. What we haven't disentangled yet, and this is very important, is, you know, naturally wolves are dying all the time. So does losing a, a wolf to a, a, a natural cause of mortality as opposed to a, a human cause mortality make a difference? And we're trying to sort that out right now. So the type of loss, it, it, does that make an impact? So very, very important. But we feel we got to do this because if you look at the mission of the U.S. National Park Service closely enough, it's to preserve natural systems and historically and, and provide for visitor enjoyment. Uh, but historically, people have only studied populational effects like, is your population okay? Is it increasing, decreasing, stable? And are humans impacting it? Um, if you really take that mission statement seriously, we need to make sure wolves are living out natural lives unimpacted by humans. And given how social wolves are, we better make darn sure that that's not impacting them either. So we're midstream on this study, um, but we're writing results up right now. You mentioned um, natural systems. The Park Service's mission is to preserve natural systems. 
And, and yet, um, what's gone on at Isle Royal National Park, some people w- would say that the Park Service played more of a role in, in molding that natural system. And by that, I mean by, by bringing in wolves to um, supplement the, the last two that were um, surviving there. It's a juggling game at times, isn't it? I mean, in that case, not really. I mean, the decline of wolves is there was human caused. So we meddled with it. And I actually don't mean to be so strong worded because some great friends and great groups oppose that as saying it's not natural to do this and stop meddling with nature and we're always better off leaving things alone. Well, in that case, it'll be a lot worse off ecologically and ecosystem-wise if you leave things alone. Uh, And if that's in the cards, then so be it. But the issue there is the population declined because of genetic depression. Why -hmm. did that happen? Well, wolves couldn't get out there anymore because Mm -hmm. the ice bridge used to form every eight out of 10 years. Now it forms every two out of three years out of every 10. So the, you know, the transfer of wolves from the mainland of the island has been cut dramatically due to climate change. And secondly, there was human introduced disease there that caused the wolf population to decline that created a bottleneck. So there are two different human impacts there that caused wolves to decline and let the moose population increase to a point where they're having huge impacts like the elk we're having here on the vegetation. And so just to step back and say, you know, whenever we intervene, it always meddles. Well, this is, it always gets messed up. This is a great example of where science has informed management uh, in a way where we can tweak it, you know, because most impacts for climate change, um, you can't do anything. I mean, climate change is so big that when we do a management action to counter it, to mitigate it, it's like holding up a candle in a hurricane. This is not that. This is, it's one of the best studied ecosystems in North America and one of the best, most long-running wolf studies in the world. And they know what's going on and they know why the wolves declined, human caused. So let's tweak it low cost, actually low management intervention, release a few wolves and the system can right itself. So I, I do disagree with friends of mine who are like, oh, no, no, no. Every time humans step in, things take a nosedive. And just when are we going to stop meddling with nature? Let's not have the human imprint everywhere. I agree with that and understand it. But in this case, this is clearly human caused. And a small tweak you know, keeps the ecosystem from going through boom-bust cycles of die-offs of moose and forest uh, you know, regression due to moose browsing. So I, I think this is a, a, an example of where science has informed management in a great way. The, the Yellowstone to Yukon initiative goes back to the 1990s, I believe. The idea was we need to create this natural corridor stretching from Yellowstone National Park to the Yukon to provide for the genetic back and forth of um, the back and forth movement of genetic material, whether it's for bears or wolves or elk or, or whatever. And yet at the same time, it seems like development never stops. Um, is, there enough, is there enough wolf genetics in Yellowstone right now that you won't have to worry about inbreeding problems down the road? Yes, at least for 100 years. Uh, we've looked at you know, genetic diversity of Yellowstone wolves, and they're equal to wolves living in northern Canada, which is largely undeveloped. 
and a large population of wolves that's got a lot of intermixing in terms of breeding. And the genetic diversity of Yellowstone wolves right now is similar to those wolves. Hmm. So, you know, how long does genetic uh, depression take? Look at our oil. They established their late 1940s and they did a nosedive in the last 10, 15 years. So what is that? Trying to do math quickly in my head, you know, 70, 75 years it took them to, with very little genetic inputs. And they had a resurgence in 1998 when a wolf did make it out there from the mainland on a year that there was an ice bridge. And that one male wolf um, perked up the population for about 10 years. Just Mm -hmm. a little bit of genetic exchange did a lot. Yellowstone being a mainland system that's not that isolated, you know, the wolf population doesn't go down to, you know, single digits. I think it's very unlikely for sure in the next hundred years that we're going to get anything like that. Yeah. And and the Yellowstone wolves seem to be pretty good at uh, dispersing. Um, I, I believe wasn't the the wolf that showed up on the north rim of the Grand Canyon a, a few years back from Yellowstone, and didn't they say there was one over towards Rocky Mountain National Park also from Yellowstone? I mean, the one Grand Canyon was Wyoming, but right next to Yellowstone, and there was a Colorado wolf that was actually colored north of Yellowstone by the University of Montana that went over a thousand miles, you know, circuitous routes, mm-hmm. not straight line, but that's how far it went. But, but that was by the state of Wyoming and the University of Montana. But yes, they did go that far near Yellowstone. But, you know, wolves traveling hundreds of miles to them is not a big deal. Uh, we do have a wolf dispersal study, not published, but we've looked at over 200 dispersal movements of wolves leaving Yellowstone. And you know, they, if there's anything they do well, it's travel. I mean, they're historically, and before humans took over the continent, you know, wolf habitat was North America. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mexico to the Arctic. Yeah. And that's the problem with wolf taxonomy. I get so tired of hearing this, you know, you reintroduce the wrong wolf. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the joke about that is these things move around so much, they don't really differentiate by region because they're moving hundreds of miles, even thousands of miles. And throwing their genes broadly, you don't get pockets of genetically unique individuals like you get from a mouse that gets stuck because it can't cross a river and it develops into a new subspecies or even species. I mean, that doesn't happen to wolves. So I listen to people all the time about, you know, why they don't like wolves and how living with them is awful. And a lot of that is legit. But don't make up stuff. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the made up things. You know, the Canadian wolf, it's destroying all our elk. They're bigger, they're stronger, and our elk aren't. Well, by the way, the elk that live where those wolves came from are Yellowstone elk that we reintroduced up there when there were no elk up there. So Mm -hmm. these wolves grew up with our elk from where they came from. So people forget that too. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, I'll close with um, a lot of people head to Yellowstone. They want to see wildlife. Uh, wolves might be the very number one or number two behind grizzly bears that they want to see. I've always spotted them in the Lamar Valley. It seemed pretty reliable in the uh, late spring and early summer and, of course, in, in the winter months. Is that uh, still the best place to go see wolves? It is. I would say the northeast corner of the park is the best. Uh, winter, spring is also very good. Um, midsummer, they move to high elevation and they break up, you know, their packs aren't as cohesive. Um, and then early morning, the first two hours of light, you know, whatever that is, 
it's a moving time because of uh, you know daylight savings and whatnot. That's the best. Second best is evening, middle of the day. You're just not going to see much. They shade up. They hate the bugs. They hate the heat. Um, you know, winter they even still do the same thing. Uh, even though it's colder, they still kind of lay around during the day. They're crepuscular. The morning, evening hours are for sure their activity period heights. Mm-hmm. So you know, coming winter, spring, um, northeast corner, morning, evening, that maximizes your chances. We've been talking today with Doug Smith, the Yellowstone Wolf Project leader on the state of the Yellowstone National Park wolf populations. They sound like they're doing very well. And it also sounds like you have some great uh, science to continue conducting in the years ahead. Thanks so much for joining us today, Doug. You're welcome, Kurt. Happy to do it. Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Joining us this week is Kim Schneider, the Executive Director of the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation. Welcome to The Traveler, Kim. Thank you, Kurt. We appreciate having you on. So give us a little background. How old is the foundation and when did it get organized and uh, what was the initial mission? So the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation was founded nine years ago. And the mission is all around the five national parks that can be found on Lake Superior. It's quite a unique situation. And we're just thrilled to have the opportunity to support these five national parks on such a grand lake. Do you always um, represent five right from the get-go? They did. Um, It slowly grew over time um, as different board members joined. Uh, Everyone has connections to different parks. For listeners who don't know, friends groups such as National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation work to help um, national parks um, make up uh, any shortfall or or add to the excellence um, in the parks. And it can be quite a challenge just um, representing one national park. Kim, how do you manage to represent five? That's true. Uh, You know, the national parks do get support from the National Park Service. However, um, these foundations or friend groups fundraise to help with education or um, facilities, uh, upkeep of the grounds, just the needs that the parks have to support visitors now and in the future. And the other unique thing, Kurt, is with 
the National Parks of Lake Superior Foundation is our parks are actually located in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan. Now, originally, the the whole vision of a friends group or a foundation like yours was to add to the margin of excellence to to go beyond what um, the the Park Service operations budget would pay for. And in recent years, um, as the the budget has stayed relatively flat, we've seen more and more groups such as yours be asked to do more and more, such as pay for campground renovations or, or trail work or, or whatnot. Um, are you getting more requests from the, the parks in your area to address more of the muscle and bone type of thing as opposed to the, the margin of excellence? Absolutely. In fact, one of the initiatives that I took on when I started with NPLFS is that I reached out to each of the superintendents and really asked for them to look forward to the next five, 10 years and really let us know what their needs are going to be. That is the only way that we can start to plan of how we can help them. And we got ideas from education up to solar powered vents, fans and lights for vault toilets, um, their visitor center and needing renovations there um, to just helping with uh, preservation projects. And then another great initiative that we were involved in was the Wolf and Moose Project on Isle Royal. And with that whole initiative, um, it was the capture and relocation of wolves onto the island which was all part of helping with the ecosystem and the um, influx of moose on the island. And, and your board of directors is, is okay with being asked to do those, uh, as I put it, uh, muscle and bone type of projects as opposed to the margin of excellence? They are. Um, they understand the need of the um, parks and the limited funding that they really are served from the national parks services. Um, it, it's very limited funding and they really have to stay within line, so to speak, of what they can use their funding for. And so when it comes to our foundation, we are able to provide funding and projects that help at a wider scope. Now, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, many foundations and friends groups work with just one national park. You guys work with five, um, Apostle Islands National Lakeshore, Isle Royal National Park, Grand Portage National Monument, Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore, and Keweenaw. Quite a diverse collection of parks with very different missions in, in what they're interpreting and what they're presenting. It must be quite a challenge when you, you sit down with the superintendents to um, discuss their needs and going from perhaps natural resources to historical interpretation. Absolutely. We have some of the most beautiful national parks and we're very fortunate to be able to support them and their various needs. And as you stated, each one of them brings a different, unique beauty to, to the national park system. Um, anywhere from you know, heritage centers and, and the historical side to it all, to the um, 
you know, beautiful lake shores and, and the wilderness that comes with it. The most exciting part too is the superintendents that we work with are some of the most passionate people to work with. And anytime I have the opportunity to speak with them, the passion and excitement that they bring to their positions just really kind of rejuvenate what we're trying to do as well. Now, certainly um, by um, working with five units of the national park system, that really increases perhaps fivefold your, your, your donor base because um, each national park seems to have its own fan base, if you will. At the same time, a national park, quote-unquote, versus a national lakeshore, versus a national historical park, versus a national monument, some might have a deeper fan base than others just because of local interest or where they're located. How do you go about spending your funds on those five parks? Is it is it each one gets an equal amount of, of the, the overall take that you bring in each year? You know, that's a great question. We do have donors that will specify exactly which park or initiative that they want to be involved in. And we totally respect that and understand it. And when we have others who donate for the love of national parks and just the experience or from childhood of being able to visit some of these areas. So when we, um, make our contributions or to decide where the funds are going to be going. Um, it's really depending on what needs we're working towards and what initiatives are the strongest at that time. We certainly do ensure that we are supporting each park and what needs that they have as their highest priority at that time. Now, of course, um, fundraising is something that you do year in, year out. Um, but you do have an event coming up in Minneapolis, don't you, on the 21st of November? We do. And this is such an exciting event. Uh, we have now retired Superintendent Phyllis Green from Isle Royal. And we also have a great musician named David Huckfelt. And the unique thing about David is that he participated in the uh, Artist in Residence program on Isle Royale where he spent two weeks secluded and he was able to write some of the most beautiful music. So at this event on November 21st, we will have the opportunity to hear from Superintendent uh, Phyllis Green and the story about the initiative of the Wolves and the Moose Project on Isle Royale and the importance of having the wolves on the island and then also David's going to play some of the music that he was inspired to write while he spent his time there. That sounds like it's going to be a great program. Um, I've talked to Phyllis over the years, and uh, I, I'd love to meet with her and learn more about the on-the-ground work of the, the Wolf Recovery Program there. And David Huckfelt, um, really be interested to hear some of the compositions he's uh, come up with while he was there at Isle Royal. That event, again, is November 21st in Minneapolis. It starts at 6.30 p.m., I believe, at the Hook and Ladder Theater and Lounge. That is correct, yeah. And it's free and open to the public. We invite many people who would be interested in hearing the stories and the music and just, in general, just getting involved in, in the national parks. It tells such a great story. And 
since you've met with Phyllis and you've heard her, you know her inspiration, the heart that she puts behind everything. It's it's hard not to just get into her stories and just get so excited and involved in everything. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Kim. Uh, it'll be really interesting to to watch um, the foundation and what you're able to do in the years to come for each of these national parks. Thanks again. Thank you so much for your time. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, non-profit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Migration the annual or seasonal movement of animals and birds from one location to another. Triggered by changes in weather, food availability, the length of the daylight period, and other variables, the seasonal migrations of wildlife offer special opportunities to see various birds and mammals gathering, leaving, passing through, and arriving in our national parks. Here's a look at some of the many National Park System units that are made even more visit-worthy during late fall and winter by wildlife migrations. Keep in mind, this is only a small sample, a mere scratching of the surface of opportunities across a 419-unit National Park System that is geographically widespread and exhibits tremendous physical, ecological, and cultural diversity. Listeners with a deeper interest in the seasonal rhythms of wildlife watching in the national parks will want to research the subject in greater detail. To lend some degree of organization to the following sampling, we'll cite examples of eastern parks and western parks. In the east, Gateway National Recreation Area in coastal New York and New Jersey is situated where several important arterials of the Atlantic Flyway converge, allowing the park to serve as a hub for migrating birds, butterflies, and bats. The Mid-Atlantic coast is generally oriented north to south, while the New England coast is oriented roughly east to west. Long Island lies at the turning point, or crux, a location that concentrates migrating birds and marine or estuarine species migrating along the east-west-oriented New York Bight, as well as the north-south-oriented Hudson-Raritan estuary. Shorebirds, wading birds, waterfowl, raptors and other land birds, bats, and even some migratory insects are further concentrated in the Jamaica Bay vicinity of Long Island, where they find open space, wetlands, shorelands, and sheltered open water. In the Mid-Atlantic, Chesapeake Bay region, 
Assateague Island National Seashore, Colonial National Historical Park, and George Washington Birthplace National Monument are among the parks offering good to excellent shorebird and waterfowl viewing during the fall migration. The Appalachian Mountains function as a vital migration corridor for raptors, making the region's three major national parks, Shenandoah National Park, the Blue Ridge Parkway, and Great Smoky Mountains National Park, great places to hawk watch. The Monarch Butterfly Eastern Flyway runs along the Appalachians. Thousands of monarchs bound for the wintering grounds in Mexico pass through this mountain range in the fall. On Florida's Atlantic coast, Canaveral National Seashore and the adjacent Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge are situated in a key gathering area of the Atlantic Flyway, where they provide sheltered marshes, mudflats, lagoons, and impoundments that serve as resting areas and wintering grounds for a great variety of shorebirds, wading birds, and waterfowl. A typical winter will bring several hundred thousand ducks and coots to the area. Among the most interesting of birds that winter at Canaveral, Merritt Island, are white pelicans that spend their summers in the Rockies, including Yellowstone National Park. Just south of Miami, Biscayne National Park provides wintering grounds for some gentle giants, West Indian manatees. Stopover birds are a bonus here. You'll not see them, but it's great to know that northern right whales come to Florida's Atlantic coast from December to March to calve and rest before returning to their summer feeding grounds in the northern North Atlantic. Nearby Everglades National Park functions as a critical wintering area or stopover for numerous migratory bird species, such as the peregrine falcon, bobolink, tree swallow, ibis, and hinga, and various species of egrets and herons. Like Biscayne National Park nearby, Everglades has wintering manatees. At Dry Tortugas National Park off of Key West, it's a little late now to catch the large flights of raptors, such as sharp-shinned hawks, broad-winged hawks, merlins, and peregrine falcons, that gather there to feed on the shorebirds in September and October. So mark your calendar for next fall. The south-flowing Mississippi River forms the core of one of North America's great avian migration routes, the Central Flyway. Since this migration corridor funnels vast numbers of waterfowl and other birds into the lower Mississippi River Delta, the Jean Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve is well positioned to provide vital resting and wintering habitat for an impressive number and variety of birds. Blue-winged teal and northern shovelers make layovers at the Buffalo National River in Arkansas on their way to the coast. Visitors to Jean Lafitte National Historical Park and Preserve in Louisiana will also get to see blue-winged teals, along with mallards and lesser scops. Even though Texas is usually the last stop for many migratory birds, you might see redheads passing through Big Thicket National Preserve in the months ahead. Looking to western national parks, there are more than a few options for spotting wildlife in the coming months. Waterfowl, seabirds, and raptors moving along the Pacific Flyway draw many visitors to Point Reyes National Seashore and the adjacent Golden Gate National Recreation Area, but nothing like the tens of thousands who come to view migrating whales. Gray whales heading south to their wintering and calving grounds in the Baja California lagoons can be viewed as early as mid-December, but are more numerous in mid-January. Some of the best places to enjoy whale watching are Point Reyes National Seashore in Northern California and Cabrillo National Monument in Southern California. Tens of thousands of people go to Point Reyes every year, mostly between December and May, for the primary purpose of spotting some of these leviathans. If the weather cooperates, not too much fog in other words, 
Many places along the headlands offer good vantage points. The observation platform of the recently refurbished Point Reyes Lighthouse is as good as it gets. Cabrillo National Monument near San Diego is another good place to watch migrating gray whales. The peak migration is in mid-January, but you can see whales at Cabrillo from mid-December to late March. The best viewing is from the old Point Loma Lighthouse and the heights around the park's whale overlook. As birds head south on their annual migrations to Mexico, Central America, and South America, hundreds of thousands pass through parts of Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Even though the deserts and mountains of southern Arizona are not situated along one of the continent's four major flyways, it has two of the very best fall and winter birding hotspots, Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument and Chiricahua National Monument. Migrants account for most of the enormous avian diversity in these parks. At Organ Pipe Cactus, for example, more than 230 of the 270 recorded bird species are transients that take advantage of the desert's warm winters, available food, and other habitat assets. Padre Island National Seashore, a globally important bird area of astonishing avian diversity with more than 380 species recorded, provides an abundance of protecting resting and wintering habitat on the Gulf Coast of Texas, where the Great Central Flyway funnels millions of migrating water birds and land birds. At Yellowstone National Park, where severely cold and snowy weather can persist for months on end, the transition from fall to winter doesn't just send the bears into hibernation. It also puts the park's elk, pronghorn, and bison into motion toward lower places that have more warmth and food and less snow and predator pressure. Pronghorn, some of the bison, and most of the elk migrate outside of the park. Still, good spots to spy some of these magnificent animals are in the Lamar Valley, which you still can drive to in winter, and along the Firehole River, south of its confluence with the Gibbon River at Madison Junction. Of course, you'll need a snow coach or snowmobile or stamina and a good pair of cross-country skis or snowshoes to reach that area in winter. Now, seasonal migrations have not only to do with what you can see in the national parks, but also what you cannot. At Carlsbad Caverns National Park, for example, you won't see great clouds of Brazilian free-tailed bats emerging from the big cave's natural entrance after late October because they've left for warmer nesting and foraging sites to the south and won't be back until March. Far to the east in Congaree National Park, you won't see those gorgeous yellow protonotary warblers and other neotropicals now either, since they've already headed south for winter as well. When planning your winter park visits, be sure to check out your chosen park's website for wildlife viewing tips and wildlife checklists. They are great resources to help ensure your adventure includes some great wildlife sightings. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it and hope you enjoy the various voices and stories we bring to you every week from around the National Park System. You can help us expand these shows with a donation. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that relies greatly on its listeners and readers to bring you editorial content from the parks every day of the year. You can donate at nationalparkstraveler.org via the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll be talking about the Saguaro Cactus Census at Saguaro National Park. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks.
The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com.